today on Gikidimim Powers. And I spoke to Takashima Sensei, and one of the kids at the one of the young people at the at her panel said, "How do you get over imposter syndrome?" And she stared at him like, "Why would you have imposter syndrome?" And not in a mean way. She said, "I've never had that." If a publisher says to me, I need you to do a comic, she says, okay, they need me to do a comic. And I had literally never in my entire life having met thousands of people, met an artist who was so 100% confident and assured that she had every right to be where she was and every right to be doing what she was doing. And there was never one question in her mind that she was absolutely capable of doing it. And I have literally never met another human like that. And I changed. It changed me. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and you are listening to Geekdom in Pause. It's been a while, a long while, and I'm glad to be back. A lot of things have happened. There were family medical emergencies, hospitals, hospitalizations, while at the same time I was trying to find a new job. I was getting acclimated to a new job, and mostly medical emergencies. So... I'd like to say that everyone's fine, everyone's not fine, but that's the way it is. I'm fine, my immediate family's okay, my kids are well, my wife is well, and this is an ongoing thing. I just had no bandwidth to do anything. I was sitting on existing uh, interviews and I just couldn't publish them. So I'm really glad to be back. I'm able to breathe now. I want to, con- you know, this will continue. These interviews are great and I love doing the podcast and I love meeting the people who are in the podcast so today's amazing interview has been sitting around waiting for me to return so I can release it to you and it's finally here so let's do it the way we used to do it Geek the Mean Pals is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted it's these people it is us who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their stories, Geekdom in Pals creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. Today's interview is with Erica Friedman, the author of Bioside, the first 100 years of Yuri anime and manga. It is the untold story of lesbian love in Japanese animation and comics. Whatever I would say would be too little to cover her history with Yuri Manga, her contribution to it, or the fact that she's been blogging about it and being active in the community for 20 years now. Whether you've ever heard of Yuri Manga before or not, you want to listen to this truly fascinating interview. It is about Yuri Manga, it is a, and it is, as always, about following the geeky thing that you love and following Geekily, the geeky thing that you love. It's an amazing story. Let's begin. Can, can you talk a little bit about the pictures behind you? Like this, uh... Sure, be glad to. Um, the pictures behind me are my uh, original art gallery 
So I have on the one wall, I'm just going to shift you all over here. I'm going to bring you up a bit. Mm -hmm. So I have um, up here is a picture from Kasasan, uh, the Kasasan series by Takashi Mihiromi. And that is from Gunjo by Nakamura Ching. And this is a piece of work by Jesse B from an original publication that I published some years ago called Yuri Monogatari that made me laugh hysterically. So I asked her for the original page. This is a piece by Rika Takashima. It was a cover of Anis magazine back in the late 90s. And this is a piece of work by a friend. And then there's some other stuff. Um, I've actually got a cell that's going to replace the print of the cell. The same cell is going to replace that. And that's that's my current art gallery right now. Overseen by the queens of Yuri, Haruka oh. Michiru, Sailor Taras, and Neptune. They oversee the whole room. How do you get them? How do you get those cells? How did I get these? Yeah. Um, well, when uh, I published Yuri Monogatari, I love Jesse's story so much. I asked her directly. Rika sells canvas prints of this print. So I purchased one of those. Uh, Gunjo Nakamura Ching sent me a copy of the magazine with that picture in it. So I framed it and I interviewed Takashima Sensei at TCAF in 2000, Toronto Comics Arts Festival in 2019. And she drew that for me. And so that's how I got those. And I have a couple more pieces that are coming. I have some cells on the other side and some art cards and some other stuff that I have hung up. This is my relatively new office. So I've surrounded it with all the things that make me happy. Nice, nice. So let's go back a bit. Okay. What is your origin story? How did you get into My origin story. My origin story is this. Back in the late 90s, my wife was home. She was not working at the time. And she was watching Cartoon Network, which at the time was just really building a huge audience for two cartoons, Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z. Mm-hmm. And then one day she said to me, you really need to come home and watch this cartoon, Sailor Moon. It's, it's something. So one day I came home a little early and the episode on the TV at the time was Cruise Blues and the character of Ray, Sailor Mars, and Amy in American, um, Sailor Mercury, were both on this ship and it was a date ship. And at one point they turn around and they say, well... Amy says, well, did you notice we're the only ones here without boyfriends? And, um, and Ray says, well, we don't need boys to have fun. And I turned to my wife at that moment and I said, we are watching two completely different cartoons. You are watching one with incredible lesbian, uh, you're watching prepubescent girl anime and I'm watching one with incredible lesbian subtext. At which point the giant hole of the suck hole of all my time and energy opened up like the black hole of the center of the universe. And, and I just, everything of my life went into there. I started doing some research about this Sailor Moon thing. And I wondered, you know, what was it and what was going on? Uh, I started paying attention to um, the fact that there was in fact a lesbian couple on that cartoon. And then I got some uh, subtitles, which back in the day we did by sending a blank tape to some guy <laughs> who sent you back a copy of his his, his laser. We're talking about VCRs, right? We're, we're talking about VCRs VCR. and laser disc. I mean, okay. really back in the day. Um, so we got that. We found out about Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune, and realized that we had opened up a whole world of interest. Um, I started getting interested. We started building a fandom around that content 
Um, there was a Sailor Moon fandom growing. This was the late 90s. So wait, wait, wait. How, how'd you get a fandom? Like that? Well, that's what I was just saying. Cartoon Network was really building the Sailor Moon fandom here in okay. the US. <clears throat> and I was on Usenet. I was very, very active on Usenet. In fact, I was a moderator of a martial arts Usenet group, um, which was sort of a crucible in and of itself. Uh, pretty much no harassment online has ever terrified me since because it's you really get a lot of thick skin when you're on Usenet. So I was building a fandom in particular series groups like alt fan Sailor Moon. And there's a bunch of us who like what we now know as the outer senshi. And so we started talking about that. We started talking about new series like Revolutionary Girl Utena. And sometime around 2000, I made a website called Analesbocon, the animated lesbian convention. It was not my name. I took it from a fanfic of Utena. Um, and it was a woman named Nick who, who created the name. And basically the idea was there's a convention, an anime convention, and Haruka from Sailor Moon and Juri from Utena are the chair and vice chair. And wouldn't it be cool to have a convention for animated lesbians? So I created this group online and I said, we're gonna do, the group is like an online convention. Well, I had a um, mailing list on Yahoo Groups, which was cutting edge. And in 2001, Yahoo Groups purged all the queer groups, everything that was remotely queer. So Yuri and Gia, uh, Boy, Boys Love and anything, anything gay at all, just purged but, all the groups. Let's get, let's, let's hold on that for a second. They did that, like, do we know why they did that? Was there For the same reason that LiveJournal did it, that Tumblr did it, that Patreon did it, that everybody gets to a point where they realize there's a lot of people out there making money off of queer stuff and somebody somewhere, some parents group, some religious group goes, oh no, queers have space, let's stop this. And they write the banks and they make the banks stop allowing money to be changing hands. So porn is always attacked that way in that same way. And because porn is always attacked the same way. Anything that's queer is equals porn for a lot of people in this America who are very um, intolerant. They're, these two things, regardless of what the actual content is, yeah. is equivalent. So if I say I am a lesbian, they say, oh, you're grooming children. Well, of course I'm not. I don't even like children. I actually dislike children strongly. I would prefer never to be near them if I can help it, which gets a whole nother group of people angry. Um, so what happens was whenever there's a lot of queer content, somebody gets really upset and really freaked out and demands that all of those groups be purged. So LiveJournal did it too um, later on in the so, 2000s um, and Patreon did a thing a couple of years ago where they-, they A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, like this is, you would think that things have advanced enough in the United States that, you know. You would think, except for we know it hasn't. I mean, look at what's actually going on in the United States. We're regressing quickly, very quickly, terrifyingly quickly. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you that things have changed a teeny bit. So what happened was in 2001, I started up the group again and I called it instead of Analesbocon, Yurikon, because at the time I found out that the word Yuri in Japanese, which is the lily flower, uh, that, was the word that had been sort of assigned to lesbians, the Yurizoku, the Lily tribe, was assigned to lesbians, the Barazoku was the gay tribe, uh, by a gay magazine, by a man who ran a gay magazine in Japan. So I adopted Yuri. I like the name Yuri Khan. I started Yuri Khan in 2001. We had 
we have been existing by that name ever since. And but uh, well, before we go on with you, we kind of want to go a step like sideways. Okay. So I don't know what the Japanese, um, uh, what how society treats, you know, lesbians and stuff. Like it, that. That's irrelevant. It doesn't and have I'm, to gonna, be. I'm gonna cut that off because it's right. kind of irrelevant to what we're talking about. It treats gay people exactly the way every other country treats gay people, which is some people accept it, some people don't, some people are problematic, some people are angry. It's the same thing. Now, my and question the was, did it issue have is to be different than the anime manga issue. Like, did it have to be in subtext or could you actually talk about it? So that's, that's part of the origin story. So um, in 2001, I created this group. In 2002, a bunch of us decided to do a real life con. In 2003, we did an actual real life event. And again, yeah. in 2005 and seven. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because what was hot Yuri, like the hot series now, uh, then, excuse me, in 2003, would be like subtext now. Because as the audience, both in Japan and in the US, pretty much worldwide, has become more comfortable with being queer, being identified as queer, self-identifying as queer, and queer content. And as more creators are identifying as queer, making openly queer content, what's happening is that has changed radically. So my blog started in 2002 to write about this event I was going to be running in 2003. My blog, Okazu, turns 20 in August. And it has changed Everything has changed so, so much. So to answer your question, is it subtext? Yes. Is it a vertex? Yes. Is it everything else? Is it weird, creepy stuff for like bottom feeding people? Yeah, absolutely. Is it like really high artsy shit? Yeah, absolutely. All of it. It's all there. And that is exactly what we wanted. We wanted back in 2001, when we started, we were like, we want more. And in 2022, the answer is we still want more, but we're getting so, so much more right now. And it's really extraordinary. Okay, so where are you, what happened after you created Yurikon? So I created Yurikon and then we stayed on Yahoo groups, but of course, as new social media comes up, I'm jumping on, right? So yeah. uh, as Usenet phase, I have a live journal, I have a Yahoo, um, live journal fades, Yahoo groups eventually fade, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. And social media just is always the same thing, regardless of where you are. It's just people, right? <laughs> it's always just people. So what happens is in 2000, every few years, every few years in Japan, there's a media that comes out that is just so gay and everybody loves it. It's either, you know, gay men or gay women. And it's like a new gateway. So a whole new fandom shows up and goes, okay, answer all the same questions for me. And so, okay, I did. So I'm writing stuff on my blog to answer a lot of those questions, to do reviews of all the media. Every few years, a new series comes and every few years people are like, nothing's gonna ever be good again because I love the series so much. And you're like, right, you're a fan, I get it. That's totally the way it is every time. Mm -hmm. And I just kept doing it. And so people would come and go and series would come and go. And some series had a lot of longevity, like Sailor Minutas, some didn't. And uh, I'm still writing. And after about 10 years, I have a process. I kind of know my audience. I know my market, but I'm always pushing for more. So I'm also become over the years friendly with a lot of the the companies and the creators. And Twitter has been amazing for that, by the way. Twitter is an amazing place to meet creators. 
And so I'm not only am I writing about stuff, I'm writing about the history of stuff. Like what's the history of why this series is so important from 1972, like the 71, this one 1971 manga that is not out in English, but you should still know about it. Um, so I'm writing all that kind of stuff. In 2010, something important happened. Jmanga opened up a website and they were going to do English language manga and they were going to do it for anybody in the world. They had multiple languages and you buy coins from everywhere. Nobody understood their process. Now everybody does that, no problem, all the time on Webtoons and Tapas and Lazen. But then people were like, coins, I don't get it. It's so confusing. Um, but what they did at the time was they opened up a category called Yuri and they were working with me and we picked titles. They picked titles, they licensed them. And we, I helped, helped, I edited them and I had my translators translate them. So we did a collaboration. Um, and so we got more Yuri, but what happened was now the word that the Yuri, the Yuri creators had picked in 2005, we did an event in Tokyo and I sat down with everybody and I said, so the word we're using here is Yuri, right? And everyone was like, right. So that word that we, the Yuri creators and publishers and fans picked is now the genre term. <clears throat> so that kind of changed a lot of things because the publishers kept trying to push for other terms. And we were like, no, this is a good one. We're sticking with this one. And it's, it's survived. And that's very good. So what happens is every couple of years, we still get a big series. And every couple of years, people go, holy crow, Yuri exists. It's a thing. I've never heard of it before. And a new wave of people come in and an old wave leaves. And I'm still writing. And uh, in 2018, I was planning for 2019, the 100 years of Yuri. It's, I had picked 1919 as the origin of Yuri for a series called Yana Urunani Shoujo, Two Maidens in the Attic. It's a novel, it's not been translated into English. And I picked that because it wasn't the first novel to have two women with intense, romantic, physical, mental, emotional relationship, but it gave us a lot of tropes that have survived. And so I decided, in, like, I decided in 2019 would be the 100 years of Yuri. Hmm. So 2018, I thought, you know, I should really start collecting all this stuff up. I should put it all together in one book. 2019, we, uh, we went to all the events I could manage to get to, and we did a tour of Japan with a bunch of people for to celebrate the 100 years of Yuri, which was fantastic. And I came home. And that winter, COVID. And I thought, well, time for the book. So I sat down and I collected everything I'd ever written, ever spoke about in public, ever done anywhere. And I put it all in my manuscript and I had and about 40,000 words. And I thought, well, that's cool. I want about 60,000. So let's start writing. So I started writing more essays. And then I wrote some stuff specifically for the book. I wrote some for the blog and moved it over and I wrote some for the book. And at the end of the day, I had about 80,000 words and I have by your side, the first hundred years of Yuri and anime manga. And that's, um, that's my book. And there it is. And it's a big, hefty, almost 300 pages of Yuri history of overviews and reviews of opinion pieces and thought pieces and, uh, and like even a chronology of events, like right down to all the, the the least little thing I could find that ever had anything to do with you is in that book. It's amazing. Now you published by Galactic uh, Journey, right? Galactic I, I'm published by Journey Press. Yes. Journey Press. Yeah. Uh, Journey Press, and I have to say they have been outstanding. They have they are they are 
absolutely a writer's dream. Everything about the process went so smoothly. And I don't mean that it wasn't difficult. I mean, they would, they would point something out. I'd point something out. We'd come to a place and the design they did on the cover. I, I want to show, I don't know if you're going to have this as a podcast, but I'll show you at least. The podcast the cover, and the YouTube thing. Yeah. Yeah. The cover is a piece of original art by Rika Takashima, who's been with me since the beginning. I mean, I didn't even tell you that story, um, but it represents uh, girls from a hundred years ago. So this is, this is Taisho period, Japan. They're in the two oldest girls schools uniforms. And then you can see that, that it sort of breaks down, the picture breaks down and as it opens up into the end, we have the same two girls a hundred years from now in the future. And on the back, yeah. On the back of the cover and the, the, the boundaries have disappeared. The body language has changed. So a hundred years ago, they're holding each other's hands and looking at each other's eyes very intensely. And this promise that maybe, you know, they'll try to stay together or try to stay in touch. And a hundred years from now, like none of that applies. They can just be together and be free and be colorful and happy and uh, everything. They just did a beautiful job on the cover and they did just a gorgeous job all the way through. So I'm so pleased with Journey Press. Amazing. And we, uh, I have Gideon Marcus as a guest. Uh, on the show. Yeah, Gideon, uh, is, Gideon is an outstanding, outstanding speaker. How'd you meet him? How did I meet Gideon? Um, actually, I met him through his wife, Janice, who is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, Janice and I, Janice was a member of my first writer circle that I created uh, back in the day for fanfic. And um, our name was Fanfic Revolution because fanfic doesn't have to suck. And that was, we had a pretty high standard of writers. And I'd say almost all of us have actually been professionally published at some point. It's good. I, I need to find some fanfic. For other <laughs> episodes, fanfic writers. I, I yeah. can't fanfic, fanfic is, it's, it's a kind of writing. And I, I'm not a big fan of people who, who diss fanfic. I think fanfic can be a really great proving ground. It can be a place where you develop voice, a, a place where if you have a good writer circle like I did, we, we were really cruel to each other. We really made each other better writers and we edited the hell out of each other. Um, and I learned to be a good editor there as well. Um, but I think all of us really moved on to do some pro professional writing because we just we really got that writing was an important part of ourselves. And we did it because we were writing fanfic. Um, it wasn't the fanfic that made us writers, but it was the being a writer that made us start writing fanfic. And I think that's really, really interesting. I think most, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have gone on to write original fiction. So you start with fanfic, right? You're using somebody else's world and ideas and mm -hmm. scenes, and it makes sense, right? You're filling in holes. And I, I, I legitimately consider this to be the work of ancient bards. Bards went from village to village. They did not tell new stories. They told old stories. They told stories everybody knew. You told the story about how King Arthur was once here. And don't you remember when King Arthur fought with your uncle? He was so brave that day. And then they launch into a story that everybody knows, only they add in your uncle. If that's not a fanfic, I don't know what is. Well, if you think about the original Greek tragedies, are all based are all on stories. They're all parts of, based on the myths. Yeah. Exactly. Homer was not telling a story that was new. He was telling a story everybody knew. Right. Every story that we can th think of as classical literature. I mean, how much of Shakespeare when they go, well, he took this from this book. Like, hello, he was writing fanfic. Um, and there's so much of it. And then so much now of what we see in movies even is still 
fanfic. I mean, you look at um, some of the superhero movies, they're taking arcs from the comics where they mm -hmm. originated and they're making movies of it. It's not the same script. It doesn't have the same characters because they're using the characters they want to promote. Still fanfic of their own stuff. Um, so I started with fanfic, Sailor Moon fanfic, and I worked in a lot of different um, fanfic in the year. And I still, all my fanfic is still up. You can find it. Um, I'm not ashamed of it at all. And then I started mm -hmm. writing an original story for my mascot character at Eurycon. And that is now in its third novel. It's 100% original. Um, the first two novels are for free on Eurycon. Um, and, then, and then I started writing original work and I was writing on the blog. I was writing original nonfiction. So yeah, we have, that's, I think fanfic is an outstanding place to, to, uh, to begin. And I want to say that Janice is an amazing writer. So I became friendly with Janice and then Gideon and been friends with them ever since. Nice. And what's the story you didn't say? You were talking about the artist who drew the cover for you. So how I met Rika Takashima. Yes. Rika Takashima is the woman who did the cover art, both front and back for, uh, for By Your Side. She also drew a comic called Rika Takanji, which is the first Yuri manga to ever be published in English by me, by anybody, but by me. Uh, ALC publishing I was doing at the time. I met Rika when I walked into a lesbian bar. Um, I was running an event at a New York City lesbian bar and she walked in and I walked over to say hi. And I said, so what do you do? And she said, well, I'm a mangaka. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, who, who does that? Who comes to this you know, lesbian bar? And she said, no, really. And we started talking and she showed me her work and I thought, I want to publish this. This is exactly the kind of manga I want to publish. So I worked with her and this is back in 2002. We published Rika Takanji in 2003. So ALC Publishing was the first Yuri publisher. Um, and then we did works by uh, Eriko Tano. And uh, then we did the Yuri Monokatari series and we published basically through about 2010. And then with various reasons, uh, various, the, the, the economic crash and various personal stuff and eventually I had to stop publishing um, but Rika and I uh, whenever anybody says how do you meet Rika I said well she walked into a lesbian bar and the history was made and who else did you have you met over time like uh, original artists writers creators animators oh yeah gosh um, I've, I've tried to go to events all around the world and I've met a lot of my favorite writers and I am I'm one of those people that just like every other nerdy fan I become incoherent um I just I start stuttering and went oh, oh. um I've met um I met my very famous favorite writers in Japan and uh one or two of them I've had a chance to spend time with which is really lovely um and uh I've been in a manga at least twice um there's a little cartoon, there's a cartoonist called Marishima Akiko, and I had met her at an event, at my 2005 event, and she actually did a little comic of me, and it went into comic Yurihime, or Yurihime at the time, uh, magazine, which was a Yuri manga magazine, and some 15 years later, we met again, uh, 13 years later, we met again, and we were sitting there at Yuri 10, which was a different kind of event, it was more like a art exhibit shop, and like a pop-up. And uh, I was talking to her through the uh, translator and another person who is the actual true Yuri master. His name is uh, Kawamoto-san. He actually knows more about Yuri than I do. <clears throat> and uh, we were all talking and 
Mershma Sensei looks at me and goes, well, Hisashi Buri. And I said, yeah, it's been like 13 years. And then they both look at me like, you've met? I'm like, well, it just kind of happened that I met. Uh, we met in 2005. So I've, uh, 2005 was a great place. Uh, that was Yurikon in Tokyo. It was a great, great place to meet some of my favorite artists. Um, I admire these people greatly. They're doing really difficult work. Um, I think being an artist is one of the hardest things in the world. I mean, I'm honestly, I think my, my list is probably number one is nurses and two is artists and three is teachers. I think like that's the list of difficulty in terms of jobs in this universe right now. And uh, so meeting them and meeting, um, you know, meeting voice actors and stuff at conventions and stuff, but that's less important to me than, than the actual folks who do the writing and doing the art and, uh, and actually produce the work. And of course, I've had a chance to meet a lot of the folks in publishing, in the manga publishing field, uh, again, all of whom I admire greatly, who are doing incredibly excellent, excellent work. Um, particularly now that once the pandemic hit, uh, sales for manga went through the roof and digitally as well as, as physically, particularly since there was the, um, you know, the, there was a paper shortage and there was all sorts of shipping issues and everything else that we're dealing with. Uh, so uh, manga, like the manga sales went like, was like 125% rise over one year. And so they're just getting this stuff out as fast as possible. So I'm really, I, I have nothing but respect for these people. Is the well, before my next question, by the way, we can both we can compare stories. Uh, I was also put inside uh, the people put me in a book. Uh, Lopiti Da put me in one of the books. I was excellent, uh, it was a murder book. I was one of the suspects. Sadly, I didn't oh, nice. kill anyone. I mean, it's kind of fun, right? It's just a <laughs> it, it's a wank, <laughs> it's a wank, yeah. you know. And there's, there's a comic that we have a page of. Rika does a monthly comic for a local Japanese language uh newspaper. And there's a comic they have of me um, declaiming about strawberry shortcake <laughs> in, in anime manga. How like it's always when you see a cake, it's always strawberry shortcake. It's never any other kind of cake. And I was talking to her, and the next thing I know, I show up in a comic going, <laughs> it was so funny. Oh, uh, you know, it's wanky, but it's fun. Mm -hmm. Is there is there anything you learn from uh, about about this from from talking to the people who created like something you never expected something that you know through you so uh, yeah actually the thing that I think about a lot I think about this a lot when I talk to writers and artists particularly young writers and artists a lot of people just it's not imposter syndrome there's got to be a bigger word for it where people are just struggling constantly with the fact that they're not living right I mean it's not just I don't belong here it's like I don't know how to do any of this even if they're functionally doing a lot of it they just all people I know who are some of the competent most competent people in my life struggle with this inability to just accept that what they're doing is perfectly fine and I've met a lot of writers and a lot of artists and all of them are living with that that's that that background level of anxiety about functionality so on their sleeves and I just I find that amazing and then then I met in 2019 in Toronto at Toronto Comic Arts Festival which I just want to digress and say is the best North American comics show it's not an anime con there's no cosplay it is about 
the drawing and writing and publishing and selling of comics in every single form, manga and comics with an X, indie comics and mainstream comics. And it's a beautiful, wonderful event. And I recommend it highly. And I spoke to Takashima Sensei and one of the kids at the, one of the young people at the, at her panel said, how do you get over imposter syndrome? And she stared at him like, why would you have imposter syndrome? And not in a mean way. She said, I've never had that. If a publisher says to me, I need you to do a comic, she says, okay, they need me to do a comic. And I had literally never in my entire life having met thousands of people, met an artist who was so 100% confident and assured that she had every right to be where she was and every right to be doing what she was doing. And there was never one question in her mind that she was absolutely capable of doing it. And I have literally never met another human like that. And I changed, it changed me. Um, I've worked very hard to be the leading voice in Yuri and in queer manga. Um, I've worked very hard to establish a presence on various media. And I don't mean social media, but just being a person whose name sells books. I no longer would ever think or say, but mostly think that I don't have the right to stand in front of a room and say, I'm the expert here. It changed me. It wasn't the first thing that changed me. Something else years ago before that, that actually was very similar. A man who I had zero respect for, I will not name him in a, on a venue I will not mention. Um, he was one of the most arrogant human beings I've ever, said, ever met. He mocked me uh, and he mocked everybody because he was just an asshole. He mocked women particularly because they say, well, I think whatever, or I believe whatever. And he'd say, why? Why don't you say whatever? And it's like, of course, the answer is because as soon as you do say this is this, the, the mansplainers come and explain stuff to you. And it's, it's not even that you don't, you have to fight it off. It's just like boring. It's boring. Um, and so I realized at the time I was going to stop saying, I think, I feel, I believe, oh, this is what I think. You know, I'm like, no, actually this. And it pegged me as being very arrogant and opinionated. And I'm 100% okay by that. Um, but listening to Kashima Sensei, basically being completely grounded. Like if a publisher comes to me and says, we want me to do that. The answer is they already decided that I was capable of doing it. So that's already answered. That's the end. And I was like, gotcha. And so that, that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned that if, if you're out there making something, anything, a podcast, videos, books, uh, comics, anything. If you do literally any form of creative effort and you do it, you have the right to do it. You are capable of doing it. Um, and there's no more questions. There's no, what if I'm not, th th that question is irrelevant. You know? And I didn't mean to brush off the other thing about Japanese people. I'm gonna, we'll come back to that later. But, but th the question for people is not if, but can. Can you do it? Then you've done it. And my, my, whole ideal of what life should be like at that point change, which is the answer is just do it. That's it. I don't care. I mean, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to be in a commercial here, but do you have an idea? Anybody listening to this, if you have an idea and you're thinking, you know, I'd really like to whatever, whatever, just do it. Just do it. It could suck. In fact, I welcome that it sucks. It should suck. The first one should suck. The second one should suck. The third one should suck. And each one will progressively suck a little bit less. And one day you'll be like, 
oh, hell, I'm a writer, aren't I? Oh, man, I guess I'm a painter. I have a room full of paintings I've done. The point is you did it. And that puts you in a really small minority of incredible people that you managed to do the thing that you said you wanted to do. And that was the lesson. Interesting. Uh, and it's also important to say, I think, that you know, people who you know, beat their chests and say, you know, I am great, I am this, I deserve this, are actually masking insecurity. Usually. Like, I, I'm sure that, you know, what she did was she said it calmly, right? She no, she was, saying, she was saying, I have every right to be here. Yeah. She, she was not questioning her right to be here, which so many people do. And that's different than saying, I am the best, I'm the greatest. Um, right. I have actually in 20 years said, like, people have argued with me about Yuri. And I said, you, do you, you have any idea how much more about Yuri I know than you do? <laughs> but, but it's mostly in the context of me having a little bit of fun with them, not really being, you know, being a raging mm -hmm. asshole, although I can be, but I do it usually to amuse myself. Is there some, someone you learned from about the content of the stories that you didn't know before? Wow, what a great question. I have read so many thousands of books. Um, you know, yes, I've learned personal lessons. Like one day you're reading a, a comic and you go, wow, I really think that character design is super awesome. And then you think, but why, why do I like that? What does that character design say? Um, but also funny things like there's an anime right now called Birdie Wing, a girl, a girl's golf story or golf girl story. I'm sorry. It's a very weird title. Birdie wing, a golf girl story. And it's not beauty in the sense that it's like two girls definitely in love or anything. It's not a romance story. It's a mafia underground golf story. <laughs> Adventure. Spy. Story. It's great. It's great. Yeah. And I, I'm going to tell everybody, not only should you read it, but you should go to anime news network and read Steve Jones's reviews of it. He is out doing outstanding writing about this incredible anime. And it's written by the same guy who wrote a very popular Yuri anime from 2005 uh, called Madlax, which was part of a series, Noir, Madlax, El Cazador de la Bruja. So it was like 2003, four or five. And they're about a couple uh, in those cases. In the early ones, it was about a bunch of girls, on girls with guns on the run. It was a pair of girls. There were, for reasons, there was always people after them shooting at them and they were shooting back. And they were great series. And the guy who wrote the uh, Madlax is also writing this new golf star. And I've been arguing for years for a really good Yuri sports story. It's the one thing I've wanted my, that I don't have is a really solid, like 24 volume, blood, guts, tears, two women beating the crap out of each other in mixed martial arts or fighting out on the field in soccer or, you know, whatever, uh, swimming or I don't even care, you know. Uh, ping pong, whatever. But I've always wanted a really, really amazing uh, sports story. And I got to Birdie Wing and it's not overtly a Yuri story, but there's definitely Yuri elements and it has a lot of that feel of um, the sort of wackiness for Madlax. And I thought, wow, you know what? I think we have a winner. This is my Yuri sports story. It's got like some texty Yuri and some really creepy um, predatory lesbian characters and uh, just a lot of all the elements that I like, like, a, you know, like a hot suit wearing, smoking mafia underlord, you know, like, you know, underworld, uh, you know, 
a crime lord woman, you know, <laughs> like stupid shit. And you're like, okay, well, I guess that's what I like. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing you really learn from reading lots and watching lots is you find what you like and what works for you and why. And did you ever meet uh, like a writer that gave you insight into a story that you didn't have before? Uh, yes. Um, I was very honored to talk with uh, Nakamura Ching, who wrote Gunjo. It's one of the pictures up here. Um, it's one of, it's probably my most favorite manga ever. It's not in English. Um, I should say it's not collected into an English volume. You can get volume one on her website, which is on note.mu. And her name is uh, Ching, Nakamura Ching. So it's uh, ching.tv is her website. Um, Gunjo is a true crime style story. It's not really a true crime story at all. It's about, it's a very dark um, story about a woman who has lived her whole life uh, abused, abused by her father, abused by her husband. And one day she finally contacts the lesbian that had been in love with her in high school and asks if she would kill her husband for her and the lesbian does and then they go they're out on the run for the next couple of weeks and it's an intense it is so dark and so intense but it's outstanding and i was very honored to be able to edit that first volume on her website and i learned a lot about why the characters did what they did a lot of it is backstory and um why they speak the way they speak and um what has informed their lives. And at that time, I really realized that what makes a story work for me more than anything is the writer should know the other stuff, even if it doesn't come into the story. If you ask me where my mascot character for Yuriko, Yuriko, I have two full mm -hmm. novels and a half of a third novel uh, by her about her. If you ask me where did she grow up, I can tell you what town she is, um, what kind, what she was like in high school, you know, who was her best friends, what, she, what was she into. It doesn't matter if those things never actually show up in the story. I know them, and that was what really drove that home: is that all that developmental stuff should be there. Full world building makes a better story, even if that stuff isn't necessarily relevant to that piece of the story, having the character fully developed in your head makes a better character. Uh, is there, like, before we go, two things. One is, uh, Alvis, what would you recommend people read now? Like, right, read right now. I'm in love with The Villainist. There is a, it's both in light novel series and a manga. I'm in love with The Villainist by Inori, art by Hanagata uh, for the light novels and for the manga Awanoshimo Sensei. It is 10 out of 10. It is fantastic. It is an isekai story, which is an other world story. So the premise is that the main character has somehow been transported to the world of her famous, her favorite game. Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty standard D&D trope from back in the 70s, but it's got gotten very popular in Japan. It's called Isekai, uh, Otherworld. Um, in some cases, the characters die. In some cases, they just wake up and they don't know how. Some cases, they have an accident in that other world and realize their former life or whatever. In this case, we don't know how. She just wakes up one day in high school, in the high school of her favorite otome game, which is a dating sim game where you are as if Otome games are, if I'm a female character, I play a female character and all the boys are fighting after me and you have to pick this prince and then you go after that prince or you go to this, you know, 
great hero, whatever. Mm-hmm. So Otome game. She played this Otome game over and over and over. She was an adult in our world. She wakes up as the protagonist in the game. And instead of going after the princes, she goes after the villainess. Mm-hmm. And then the story does things that absolutely are entirely not like any other story I've ever met. They do things like have discussions about queer life. They have discussions of social justice and financial inequity and how to remake society and what the purpose of revolution is. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's amazing. It's five volumes, the light novels. The fifth one will be coming out this summer. So you get the whole series. And when I tell you that volume five is mind blowing, I'm not, uh, I'm not exaggerating. And then uh, the not, the manga is out. I think volume four just came out in Japan. So we're up to volume three coming out this summer in English. And the art is fantastic. And the story is fantastic. And it's not going to do anything you expect. So if you want to start somewhere right now with something that is just cream of the crop, start with I'm in love with the villainess by Inori. Cool. I'm going to check it out. It's great. Uh, is there anything uh, you, you want to talk about that we didn't cover? Um, yes, I want to answer that first question that you asked about Japan. Go ahead. Um, so <clears throat> the question about how does Japan feel about this is so exactly the same complicated as how does America feel about this? <clears throat> There's no way to find a representation of what I can tell you is this. In the last 20 years, the way Japan is handling queer manga has radically changed. Back in the 1990s, there was a genre, there still is a genre called boys love. And boys love is um, male-male relationships primarily written by and for women. So they were doing that to either mask their desires into pretty boys or explore sexuality without being harassed by men. Um, Because back in the day in the 90s, if you were sitting on the train reading something and somebody sees it, so let's say you're a woman and you're reading a manga and it has a sex scene, a heterosexual sex scene, the guy next to you, because men, guys will go, oh, oh, she wants it, you know, because, and you can't get them to stop being like that. So if you read two men, they'll leave you alone. They're like, oh, okay, I'm not going to talk about that. So that was one of the reasons, it's one of many reasons. Of course, there's a lot of other reasons about um, female sexuality and desire and, and uh, sexual politics. It was a way for women to um, enact sexual politics and have men be the bottom of the of the relationship as well as the top so anyway there's a there's a lot of things about bl bl was really popular still really popular but in the 1990s and then in the 2000s when yuri started really getting a big bigger fandom here and there the idea was that stuff is just porn for straight people bl is porn for straight women yuri is just porn for straight men and there was no sense at the time that gay rights, gay issues, gay lives, gay people had any intersection. And one of the things I have really been focusing on for the past 20 years is bringing these two things together where the gay community could go, yeah, I'm a Yuri Ota, I'm a Yuri Otaku and it's okay. I like Yuri manga and I'm a lesbian and it's okay. Like I can say those two things out loud. Well, in Japan, um, right now, gay couples still have no rights other than the, the sort of, you know, well, you have all the same rights as other people, which is to say, you know, none, unless it's actually explicitly stated in any law, which is to say none. 
So they can't marry legally, they can't um, inherit legally, they can't anything legally. So they can't make decisions for each other. But what happened was more people were coming out. And so some towns, some portions of cities, some larger cities, some regions have started to do partnership certificates, which is not, does not have legal binding, but at least it has social status. There's a little bit of like, hey, recognize us as a couple here. So there's that kind of thing. Um, so that's changed. And as more people come out, as more people demand this, manga and anime have also largely shifted to be more inclusive. So now if you look at the BL audience in Japan and here, they're much more pro-gay rights than they were in the 1990s when it was like, oh, that's for us, not for you. And I don't think anybody I knew even back then, those people who said that would ever say that now. They'd be like, of course you have every right for rights. So that actually changed. One of the things that changed in the last couple of years, which I cannot explain maybe to your audience um, enough, is how the idea of queer manga actually exists now in a way that did not exist even five years ago. Now you can find manga by out queer folks, LGBTQ folks, that's talking to an LGBTQ audience and mainstream audience about our issues, about our lives, and it's absolutely unapologetically by and about queer existence, by queer people for, about queer existence. And that is what I want to say to answer your question is, what does Japan think of it? At least the publishers are starting to realize the value of these stories. And I want to, to some extent, attribute this to people like Kabi Nagata, who did a comic essay called My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness, which is actually about her mental health um, and, and uh, eating disorder, about her depression and eating disorder. Um, Tagame Gengoro Sensei, who did a, a comic called My, Bro My Brother's Husband, which is also out in English. Um, that one is about um, a Canadian man who comes to Japan to learn about his his dead husband's life, early life, he meets his husband's twin brother and the twin brother is a typical Japanese man. It's not that typical, but he's, a, he's sort of an average Japanese man. And he has to figure out, he sort of has to come to terms with his own homophobia, his, his sort of internal homophobia and, and learn who his brother truly was. Um, that was outstanding and a huge hit. Uh, Kabe Nagata's stuff was a huge hit. And I think those being mainstream hits have really made a change. Also want to call out American companies for really being frontline um, on getting queer manga here. So Seven Seas, Yen Press, uh, Kodansha, Viz Media, um, J Novel Club. I'm sure I'm missing somebody and I feel bad Square Enix. Um, they all have really been openly supportive of, of openly queer manga. And I cannot tell you what a difference this is to see, say something like this. Kodansha Manga put out a manga this year. It was called Boys Run the Riot. And it's by a trans man about a trans boy and the entire localization team, every single person on it is trans, which meant that the entire thing feels 100% authentic about queer existence. And that is the thing that has changed the most. And that's the thing I want to tell people is that there's a lot coming out and a lot of it is outstanding and things are rapidly changing. And it really has a lot to do with what the fans have demanded over the years. Fans and creators are demanding more and we're getting it. What's the name of the comic book with the uh, localization? The one um, you just talked about. Boys Run the Riot bon by Gaku Kato. 
Okay. Boys Run the Riot. It's the name of a fashion brand that they design in, <coughs> in the course of the story. It's out from Kodansha. Kodansha USA, so it's out in English. Uh, if you go to Kodansha and you look up Boys Run the Riot, you can read the first chapter for free on their website. Cool. Thank you very much. Where can people find you? Oh, where you can find me? Everywhere. You can find me on Twitter as Okazu Yuri, O-K-A-Z-U. That's also the name of my blog, O-K-A-Z-U-Y-U-R-I. Um, on my website, Yurikon, Y-U-R-I-C-O-N, that we have all our essays and we have all sorts of events and stuff like that. Um, you can find me on Facebook. There's a Yurikon group. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I have the world's worst into Instagram, also Okazu Yuri. I basically just post covers of things I'm reading and tell you how I feel about them. That's a pretty much all I do on Instagram. It's the worst Instagram. Um, uh, you can find me, um, I know I'm missing a thousand things, on Mastodon now, Mastodon Social, also Okazu Yuri. And uh, I don't know, probably if you look me up, you can find me where we have a Discord. If you go to yurikon.com and you go to the links uh, page, the top will show you everywhere that I am. We have a Discord that's pretty great and everyone's really super friendly and if you want to chat you're always welcome Eka's links are in the show notes so check those out now next time because there's always a next time next time we're going to talk about interviewing dead people using AI so you will want to join us for that now what did you think about this episode email me guy.hasson, that's H-A-S-S-O-N, at geekdominpowers.com. The website is geekdominpowers.com on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. The handle is at geekdominpowers on YouTube. Search for geekdominpowers. If you want to check out my other podcast, the Squash Buckley Diaries podcast, uh, it's an experiment in fantasy about a girl living in her father's dream and we follow her from birth to death. Check that out. It is daily, the Squash Buckley Diaries. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.